I'm, I've been debating all week, and in fact, I'm still debating whether to include this week in our new series. Um, you can see the new series on the, on the screen there. It's The Outlaw Jesus. It's a, number, a series of uh, sessions where we're going to be looking at the moments in time where Jesus is so contrary to what the religious authorities or what individuals expected of him, to look at the points of crisis in the life of Jesus, the points that resulted in him being crucified, the points where he says things which seem so uncomfortable, those moments and times, we won't be able to cover all of them in a relatively short series, but we'll at least cover some. The kind of situations which we, we think, well, what does he mean by that? Uh, and where does that fit in? So that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, this week is, one of, in a way, this week is one of those situations. And yet, in another way, this week is a really, really helpful uh, stepping stone. We've been spending these past few weeks, haven't we, thinking about that historical um, event, the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's helpful to just remind ourselves, we're talking there about a historical event, something that happened, something that was recorded, something that made a dramatic change. What we've read this afternoon, Luke chapter 2, 41 to 52, is absolutely unique in the four Gospels. We've got Matthew and Luke who give accounts of the life of uh, the birth of Jesus. We've got John who talks about Jesus coming into the world. We've got Mark who starts his uh, gospel by talking about the significance of Jesus. It is only Luke out of all of the gospels who can who includes this tiny little narrative about the time between his birth and the time where he enters into ministry at around about 30 years of age. Those 30 years for all of the gospel writers, with the exception of Luke, are a silent time. Does that surprise you? It seems surprising, doesn't it? Here we've got the most influential uh, person in history. I don't think that is debatable at all. There is nobody else in the history of this world as a single individual who has changed this world in such a dramatic way and has influenced this world in such a dramatic way. Whether you believe in him, whether you put your faith in him, it is undeniable that Jesus has changed this world. I would say that that is because he is who he claims to be, which is no less than God present with us, which is what we've been thinking about over this Christmas time. It's what we hold on to as a church, that the church we, we are part of here believes that the Christmas is relevant because it is God coming into the world, breaking into our time and space. And yet, when you think about it, if we're talking about the most significant event in history, and we've got 11 verses which are talking about anything to do with 30 years of his life, when he only lived for 33 years, that's significant, isn't it? I think it's significant in its absence, because all of the gospel writers are making a point by not talking about those 30 years of saying, actually, the issue is, yes, who he is, which is all about his birth, 
That's what the Christmas message is all about. It's about his identity, uh, and then it's about his ministry. It's not about following the kind of biography of a person. The issue is Jesus who he is, and Jesus what he did. And then you say to yourself, well, if that absence is significant, why is this included? I want to suggest to you that if the identity of Jesus and his ministry is absolutely key to all of the Gospels, then this event centers on those two things as well. This event backs up those very thoughts. It's all about that. It's about who he is and it's about what he's about. And it's also, at the same time, it is filled with the most incredible comfort to us today. That's what this little 11-verse account can actually bring to us. You say to, well, I think it's interesting, isn't it, how this ends up in the Bible. You might have watched Discovery Channel or one of the other programs that's been National Geographic. It's been talking about, well, how did the Bible, how can we be believe the Bible that we've got is at the core of the question when we see certain documentaries which are suggesting all sorts of other things. Why is this included when other things aren't included? You might have heard that there are, uh, there are other Gospels. They're called the Gnostic Gospels. One of those is the Gospel of Thomas. It appears around about 200 years after Jesus' birth. Let me read you one of the uh, accounts of Jesus' childhood from the uh, Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. And the reason I want to read, read it to you is to try to emphasize how dramatically different these other Gospels are and therefore why the church, when it was working out what God was saying to us, determined this to be true and this to not be true. Let me read what it says in the Gospel of Thomas appeared in the second century. When this boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a brook and he gathered together into pools the water that flowed by and made it once clean and commanded it by his word alone. But the son of Annas the scribe was standing there with Joseph and he took a branch of a willow and with it dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged and said to him, you insolent godless dunderhead because what it says in the Gospel of Thomas of what Jesus said. What harm did the pools and the water do to you? See now, you shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately that lad withered up completely. And Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. But the parents of him that was withered took him away, bewailing his youth and brought him to Joseph and reproached him. What a child you have who does such things. After this again, he went through the village and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated and said to him, you shall not go further on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. But some who, took that, took that, uh, took, some who saw what took place said, from where does this child spring since every word is an accomplished deed? I don't know about you. But when we read an account like that of Jesus withering up another little boy who's made his pools uh, into one pool that Jesus had separated out, having called him a dunderhead, uh, and causing another boy to die because he bumped him on the shoulder, and when we compare it to this, 
It is so remarkably different. One of the things that we need to understand when we come to our Bibles, it is incredibly important for us to work this out when we see the importance of what the Bible is, which bits are true in terms of the bits that have been selected to be in the Bible and those bits which have been left out. The Bible speaks for itself. What those who've worked it out have realized is that the Bible has a supreme authority in and of itself. It speaks with a power. It speaks with an authority, which means that what we've just read can stand aside as a fable and a tale, and this is the account of Jesus' voice. I think it's really important. If we don't get to grips with the importance of the Bible in terms of what it is and why it is what it is, we're going to be at sea. We're going to be swept from one thing to the next, different ideas coming in here, different ideas coming in there. Do you want a God who is present in this kind of account or do you want a God who calls other children a dunderhead and withers them up and causes them to die? That is what is at stake. So I want to encourage you. That is why it is so important for us to get to grips with what the Bible actually says. Think about it. Compare it. It's so easy to hear, yeah, the well, you know, you've ignored this other gospel, this gospel of Thomas. Read it. It's junk. <laughs> it's rubbish. It's a, it's a mythical tale. Like everything else, so many other things that sit alongside. When you make the comparison, you realize the authority of the Bible. So we've got this little occasion where Jesus, at the age of 12, the only occasion where we see it, he's gone to his, with his family. One of the things, the first things that we see is that Jesus with his family, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem from the festival of the Passover. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, what you'll remember is that Jesus' family uh, lived up in the north of the, of the land. They moved down to uh, Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. They went back out to Egypt, and then they moved back into the north. What we see is that over the next years, they make a regular trip, year by year, probably for around about eight or nine years by the time they get back up into the northern part of the country. Year by year, they make a trip down to uh, Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. What does that say about his parents? It says that they were committed, that they were devout, uh, committed people. Jesus did not get nailed to a cross because he was part of a subversive clan. He was brought up in a family which was pious and committed and devoted Jews. Every year they went down. In fact, there's a specific note that his mother went with him as well. According to Jewish tradition, it was only the father who was required to go to the Passover. The mother was not required. And yet Mary goes down as well, emphasizing the kind of family that Jesus was brought up in. He was brought up in, surrounded by a commitment to understanding and knowing the God of the Hebrew Bible. Knowing the God of the Old Testament, committed to the, uh, the Passover, committed to the various uh, uh, religious occasions that they would follow through as devout followers of God. That's the kind of situation that he was brought up in. What we find now is that he's 12. It's just a few months before his bar mitzvah. 
that moment where he becomes a spiritually independent young man, 13 years of age. Very important that we pick out that moment in his life. Bar mitzvah, that moment where he becomes the son of the commandment. That's what it means. Previously, what he has been, has been the son of Joseph. All of the teaching, all of the instruction, all of the spiritual guidance has been under his father, Joseph. And he is about to reach the point where he becomes 13 years of age, where he becomes that spiritual identity in and of himself, just coming up to that moment in time. They travel down to Jerusalem. He's a 12-year-old boy. They go through the feast of the Passover. They're traveling back. They travel for a day, and then Mary and Joseph realize that Jesus isn't with them. I remember when... um, Uh, There was one uh, infamous occasion in our family life where we arrived back home and realized that we didn't have any of the kids. Uh, We'd left them at church. Um, (laughs) They were little. Uh, It's not like, you know, they were too small to see or anything. We actually expected somebody else to. We we noticed within minutes. I'll be honest. We noticed within minutes that, uh, did you bring them? No, we haven't got them. Let's go back and get them. Mary and Joseph traveled for a day. Uh, And then they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. What does that say to us? It, it It kind of gives us a little window into what's going on. They're traveling as a convoy. There's a whole group of people traveling down from Nazareth, down to Jerusalem, maybe wider family, maybe townsfolk. There's a whole convoy of people traveling down. The assumption is that Jesus is going to be in that convoy. They're leaving together for security reasons, safe travel, support, all of that kind of thing. Uh, And as Jesus is uh, assuming that he's with them, they realize after a day that he isn't. The rest of the party carries on, and Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, travel back the day, back into Jerusalem, and spend a day looking for Jesus. Jesus has now been missing, therefore, for three days. Uh, that, for any parent with a, a, a child of 12-year-old, is a terrifying experience, isn't it? You know, missing for a few hours, uh, you, uh, many of you will have had that experience where they go missing. I, I equally remember the moment where one of ours disappeared for about an hour and a half. Uh, and was found having a whale of a time in the ballpark, in the ball pit. Uh, he was having a great time. We were absolutely frantic for an hour and a half. Three, eight, three days, Jesus is missing. They actually travel back. They're looking all over Jerusalem. They find him in the temple. Look at what it says, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is displaying here for us, even at 12, a foundation for you and me. There is a right way to live. There is a right way to live. To live a life which is pursuing the knowledge of God. Pursuing, knowing, understanding God. 
What's amazing about this, if we stop and think about it, is that God present in this world comes into this world and then as a 12-year-old boy goes into the temple and learns and spends time. I can't, I think that that is actually a mystery about Jesus. There is an element of that which is beyond our understanding how God comes into the world and retains his being and yet at the same time grows up knowing and developing his understanding of his father. In fact, in verse 52 it says, and Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature. He grew in wisdom. It's not as though Jesus just kind of dropped into this world and grew up with this automatic, immediate, complete knowledge of his father. And yet at the same time, as a 12-year-old, the scribes surrounding him are absolutely blown away at his understanding. There is a depth of understanding. There is a uniqueness about Jesus which marks him out, which separates him, which marks actually the rest of his life. He continues to be somebody who's marked out as being different in his understanding. And yet he's marked out even now as different. And at the same time, he's growing in his understanding of his father as the son of God come into the world. It's a remarkable little scene where we see this complex mix of Jesus developing and at the same time being unique. He grew in wisdom and stature. The right way to live, according to what we see here, is a combination of obedience to God and obedience to his family. What do we see? Jesus, where it says, it continues as it, uh, verse 51, it says, they found him. We'll come back to the little conversation that goes on. Later on it says, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Luke writes it very deliberately so that he is portraying a kind of a a mutual contrast, if you can have such a thing. On the one hand, he's obedient to his father. On the one hand, he is obedient to his family. He's growing up in obedience as, as a right, good human being's son. And he's growing up in his obedience to his father as a right obedient Son of God present in the world. When we think about that, when we think about what is coming together there, we realize that at the very core of this story, once again, is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? He's one who even at the age of 12 is fulfilling the absolute complete balance of growing in obedience to his father and growing in obedience to his family in this world. I think it's remarkable that Jesus grew in wisdom. I just find that incredible to think about. To try to just spend some time realizing that the creator of heaven and earth 
the one who was with his father when he created the world, the one who was beyond everything, the one who is supreme in his being, the one who we read in Philippians, strips himself of all of his glory to enter into this world. He sits down and he learns. He grows in wisdom. Look at what it says. In his obedience, he sought out teachers. He listened. He asked questions. And he gave answers. How are you and I going to live? Jesus is, even at the age of 12, the prime example of how to live as a human being in this world. A life where we commit ourselves to just knowing God better. I'm going to grow in my knowledge of my Father. That's what Jesus is doing. Look at what it says. They're looking for him everywhere. Son, why have you treated us like this? We read in verse 48. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why have you treated us like this? You can feel the emotion, can't you, in Mary? That kind of, it's three days. Don't you realize what you've done? Why have you done this? And Jesus says something which seems very, initially very harsh. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? It's a taste of things to come, isn't it? It's a taste of things to come. Maybe it's a taste of the kind of reality that you and I have to experience. Maybe it's something that you are going through right at this point in time. That there is a necessity that there is a crisis in some relationships because of the presence of God in our lives. There is a crisis in some relationships. Jesus never came into the world and said, I've only come to bring peace. He came into the world and said, I have come to bring peace, but by necessity, that peace at times is going to cause a crisis. It was there for Jesus. There's a moment in time where he realizes, I've got a crisis going on here. I have to be about my father's business. I have to be learning and growing in my knowledge of my father. And that means that I'm going to have to put a stake in the ground as I approach the point of my manhood in spiritual terms at the age of 13. I'm putting a stake in the ground to say, this is what I'm about in the future. But I am not going to do it at absolute cost to you my earthly family, because he goes away and he's obedient to them. I think that is an amazing picture. It's an incredible example. Do not allow yourself to be in a situation where you are not holding those two uh, strings of the kite. You know know where you've got a, a kite flying with two strings. 
Let go of either one of them, the kite crashes. You need to hold on to both strings for the kite to fly. Jesus had to hold on to his family responsibilities. He had to hold on to his obedience to his family in this world. And he had to hold on to his obedience to his Father in heaven. And that is where you might be and it's where many of us will be at times. There are going to be points of crisis where the necessity, because God is in my life, because I need to grow in my knowledge of Him, because my commitment is to Him, that it will appear as though it comes above my relationship with those around me. That is a stark reality. Jesus said it like this. Well, he told a story about somebody who wanted to go and sell a field before he went to, went to follow Jesus. Let me just go and sell the field. And Jesus said, forget it. If that's a priority, let me go and say goodbye to my family. Forget it. If that's a priority, that sounds so harsh, doesn't it? And yet Jesus is a realist. He tells us straight off the bat to follow me at moments in time is going to result in a crisis. But don't allow that crisis, don't allow that pendulum to swing so far that you let go of one. But rather that you live holding on to the two. That's what he does. I don't know whether you might be in the situation, the real tangible issue of trying to deal with this. I've become a believer in Jesus. And and God is dealing with me. And I'm growing. I want to grow in my knowledge of Him. I, I want to commit myself to Him. But the more that I find I'm committing myself to Him, the more I realize it's causing all sorts of relationship challenges in lots of other areas. There is no easy answer. There's no easy answer. But there is the necessity to hold on to both of those strings of the kite. That's what Jesus is doing. Maybe if you're in that situation, one of the things I think you need is you need a group of people sat around you, praying with you, supporting you, somebody who can encourage you, somebody who can help you. You need that. You cannot go it alone. I want to encourage you, get yourself into a life group. Get yourself knit into a small group. People around you to support you. If you haven't got that, do that. Make it a commitment. I am not going to let go of one or the other. I'm going to hold on to both. I'm going to live as an example of what it is to be obedient to God by being obedient to those around me. By being in relational connection with those around me. It is absolutely essential that we work that out. But I think for every single one of us, there's something else that we see here. If you're not in that situation, if you, maybe you kind of, you can be there to support somebody else. There's something else that screams at us. It, I think it screams out in our society, in our culture, possibly more than it has done in centuries. Jesus wanted to know about his father. He asked questions. He had discussions He answered questions. He was just astounding in the way that he taught. And yet I think that we live in a a context as the the wider church. It's just too hard, isn't it? 
we're not actually that committed to the idea of knowing more about God, deepening our, our relationship, building on our knowledge of Him, filling our minds and our thinking and our, our consciousness with who He is, what He has done for us, why He is who He is, why we are so reliant on Him. And, and then, when we don't fill ourselves with that knowledge, we wonder why we're in trouble. Don't we? When we, when we kind of allow that relationship to be cool, when we allow ourselves not to be too committed to it because that's, you know, that's just a bit dry and it's just hard work... What, and then we realize that we're pulled off in all sorts of other directions. We end up in all sorts of spiritual crisis. The reality is, Paul makes it clear to the Corinthian church, do you know what? You're still children, spiritually speaking, and you shouldn't be by now. You should be growing up, he says. You're still kids. You're still drinking milk and you should be eating meat, he says. Why? So that you can be some spiritual kind of theologian who everybody admires and thinks well of? No, because your spiritual well-being, your walk day by day is absolutely dependent on you growing in the knowledge of your Father in heaven. When the rough winds blow, when the tide is sweeping you away, or so it feels, when you feel as if your anchor on life and your spiritual life is just all over the place, and you feel as if the water is no longer below your nose, it's above your nose, what is going to hold you secure? What's going to hold you secure is the growing knowledge that you have of your Father that you have built into the storehouses while the sea was quiet. <laughs> That's it. Build it up. Now, I know the reality is that God will keep us. <laughs> God's Spirit will keep us. By the power of Jesus Christ, He will secure us. But He says to you and me, do you know what? To know me is the best thing. Beginning of 2013, challenge to you, challenge to me. How am I, how are you going to grow in your knowledge? How am I going to grow in my knowledge of Jesus? How am I going to grow? Because I don't know what 2013 is going to bring. Do you? I do not know what this next 12 months is going to bring. This next 12 months might be great, it might be a crisis. I don't know what, I don't even know whether I'm going to be standing here in 12 months' time. Do you? Do you know whether you're going to be sat there? You might be stood here. <laughs> but I tell you what, we do not know. And therefore, I know that I need to get my roots really deep into a solid rock. I need to get the anchor really buried deep. And I know when I look in the mirror that I do not put the time, the commitment, that I know that I should. I confess that. I continue to confess. And I think we can all say that. We all should be able to say, I could do more to know more of God. But I do know, <laughs> when I look back over the time when the waves have got really rough, 
that the one thing that has been my comfort and my help and my security is knowing about the God who loves me. It has absolutely been essential. It has been absolutely key. When the rough times have come in the past, Jesus is a living example of what it means to be a human being in this world. You know, many religions kind of give you the idea that you, you want to free yourself from the body and, and be a spiritual being. A human kind of idea is that you want to make the most of the life that you live. And the Christian faith says, actually, you are made to know God as the people that you are with flesh and blood, speaking words, sitting down and talking, eating together, asking questions, giving answers, reading the Bible together, sharing together, walking out in the world that we live in and being amazed at the world that we see around us. All of those things, those real tangible realities of us as human beings is how we are designed and how we are built to know God. And Jesus fulfills it. Have you ever thought about that in relation to these 11 verses? He comes into the world and he makes the perfect human being. He lives perfectly. You know, the great thing is that when I'm all at sea, when I'm floundering, he isn't. He's done it. He's been successful. He's lived the life that I should live and yet can't live. He's come into the world and as a 12-year-old is at the feet of the scribes and the Pharisees giving answers which blow them away. Listening and thinking and, and debating and discussing and knowing his father in, with a level of understanding that is something to aspire to and yet know that we'll never reach it. He's done it. He is the successful human being. He is the son of God in the world and he is the successful human being. He achieves everything and models everything that we should be. That's why his life is so critical. Because his life, his success, becomes our life through him. You know, when you see Jesus and you think, I wish I could be like that. Having that level of commitment and desire to know my father so that even at the age of 12, I'd be able to be in the temple and be like that and be successful. The Christian message says that success is yours and mine. Because he has achieved it. All of that life that we don't live, he has successfully navigated. And his life becomes our life. He is doing the work of his father as he lives his life in this world. He comes in and he lives how he should. But you know there's something even more amazing. That that very Jesus, who was doing the work of his father at 12 in the temple, is still doing the work of his father. Now, 
he's still doing the work that he should do. We see a model here of a 12-year-old boy who is living life as he should, of a, the Son of God doing, doing the job that he was called to do, living in obedience to his Father. Let me just encourage you, it did not stop when he returned to heaven. The obedience did not end when he returned to heaven. Let me read you a couple of verses from Hebrews. It says this, Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is, he is, present tense, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Why is he able to save completely? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You look at Jesus and you think, pure, set apart, different, unique. In this world, yes. Continuing, yes. He continues to do that work. He continues to intercede for you and for me. I think that the work of Jesus continuing is one of the greatest encouragements of who he is. It has not stopped. If we think that the work of Jesus is dependent on his birth on a few moments that we see in the temple, on three years of ministry, if it's dependent only on that, we're in trouble. The reality is that the living Jesus continues to work to be obedient to his Father to intercede for you and for me. That means that his success is my success, yes, but he continues now to intercede for you and for me. Right now, right now he is interceding on behalf of you and me before his Father. He is making pleas, that means. He is standing in the gap between heaven and earth on behalf of you and me. That's what a priest does. He stands between and pleads our case. That means that when I fail to live like this, he pleads my case. Do not leave discouraged because you are not like this. Thank Jesus that he pleads for us and intercedes for us so we might be considered to be like this. Don't be discouraged because you're not like this. Rather be encouraged to be just a little bit more like this rather than less the way we currently are. Be positive in the fact that Jesus is not against us like some heavenly schoolmaster measuring our every move. He is on our side. And continues to work. To intercede. To do the job of successful set apart. That we see lived out in a 12 year old boy in the temple. 